Lord, it is, I pray with great zeal and eagerness that we now open your word, that we are excited for it, that we are ready for it, Lord. Our our hearts have been kind of tuned in and, and, and brought into focus, brought you into focus, uh, Lord, through just the time that we've spent uh, in song and worshiping you and in, in our giving or in our fellowship. And, and now, Lord, uh, we bring to you um, our worship by learning from your word. I pray, Lord, for myself that you would give me the right words to say, the, the proper study and, and interpretation and conviction, and, and that, Lord, you would bring the application to bear in all of our lives. And, Lord, we... We just thank you. We thank you for this morning. Lord, I want to just also just continue to pray for Ukraine and for the people there. And we think even of our own um, dear Lizaraga family and and Lisa's family that that are there, that you will comfort and care for many, that you will... Um, strengthen many, that you will encourage the people of Ukraine, that you will give them good and continued resolve, that you would, Lord, be with the leadership there from the president on down and just strengthen them, and that, Lord, you will work in the the heart of the Russian government and, and their leader to change course, to indeed even, Lord, leave um, this would be our prayer. We know that your will will be done ultimately. Lord, we, we pray for good and not evil there. We pray for the church in Ukraine, that you will use the church mightily to love the people, to care for them, to show them Christ during an incredibly difficult time. And we pray this all in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> Um, I'll tell you a little, little, little short story here. We might, we're going to do something just slightly different uh, this morning. Um, we weren't supposed to have a part two, but we're going to have a part two. And, and, and here's why. Here's why. You, you might imagine if there happened to be a, uh, a pastor preacher that, uh, let's just say, lives somewhere back east. And, uh, and this pastor preacher was at a somewhat new uh, church, you know, maybe they'd been there a year and a few months, something like this. Mind you, I'm not talking about anyone here. This is, of course, talking about somebody back east. And, and you know, in the course of their, their preaching and teaching, they're getting used to the congregation. The congregation's getting used to him. And, and uh, you know, he's never even had to, in the past, put together like a preaching schedule before. And, you know, it's a little larger church, and those things are needed. And, and sometimes, you know, you kind of plan things out, and you think, well, yeah, this is, this is going to go this way, but then you get to it and you go, huh, man, maybe we need to spend a little more time here. Maybe we need to spend even a couple of more weeks here. And, and, um, uh, you know, the, the pastor's in their study and, and you get to a passage. Well, let's just imagine that that preacher back east was preaching through second Thessalonians. Okay. Chapter five. And, and they get to the section and you go, man, there's like eight good points here. And I don't know whether I should, should just, you know, plow on through all eight points, or maybe we should just take four and four or, or three and then five or five and the, you know, and, and, uh, and, and guess what? He makes the wrong decision. 
And, and he says, no, we're going to go through eight points. You know, they're, they're quick and concise. And, man, we're just going to plow through this. And, and then you kind of realize, oh, man, we, we missed a lot of good stuff. And, 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 and we don't ever want to feel like, you know, we're just kind of, kind of uh, uh, just going too quickly through the word that, it, that we're not mining some of the depths. And, well, this is, of course, what that pastor back east was probably thinking. So, so in any case, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some... some uh, I'm going to take some direction from that pastor back east and, and realize that, that I felt after last week's message, like, you know, we had good solid eight points from God's word, but we just got through them a little too quickly. And for that, I offer my sincerest apologies. I, I, I want us to mine deep the word of God. And, and part of it, too, is recognizing where, where everybody is at in the congregation. And, and, and these are things that I'm, that I'm learning and so what we're going to do is we're going to go backwards just a little bit. And we, we looked at our first three points, and I felt like we gave uh, more time to them. And that was uh, back in our text. By the way, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So, uh, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's do this first. Let's stand and let's read the word together. Let's, let's read. Uh, I'll, I'll do the reading. You go ahead and stand and follow along with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of of evil. You may be seated. This indeed is the word of God. Now, last week, those first three points that we started off with that we gave a little bit more time to was, of course, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in everything. Today, we're going to go back and look at the last five surefire sanctifiers that we, that we had last week. And this, of course, is from Paul to that church in Thessalonica. Excuse me, Thessalonica. Um, but, but we want to understand how these play out for ourselves. And as we are sanctified by these things, personally, individually, how this then affects us as a whole church in our, our growing and maturing process as a church. So we're going to pick up and we're going to jump in with number four again which was, don't quench the spirit. Don't quench the spirit. Now, before we, we return to what it, it means to quench the Holy Spirit, it would be good for us to be reminded, I think, of some of the purposes of the Holy Spirit, especially in the context of a believer's life, in, in your life, in my life. For instance, Scripture teaches us that it's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin, and regenerates you, causing you to be born again. The Spirit places you into the body of Christ, seals you in Him. He comes to then live and dwell in you, and He starts to transform and change you from the inside out, conforming you into the image of Christ. To this end, the Spirit gives you you new desires and affections that are in line with God's will. The Holy Spirit frees you from the ongoing slavery of your sins, pours out God's love into your heart, and gives you gifts of service. 
The Holy Spirit also illuminates God's word to you, opens your, your eyes and hearts to God's truth, gives you the wisdom of God and becomes your helper, your guide, your leader, and your protector. The Holy Spirit informs your conscience of right and wrong, convicts you of sin, and intercedes for you with the Father. And undoubtedly, this is just a partial list, but it's a good place to start. So now let's get back and talk again about the quenching of the Holy Spirit, because that's what our text says. Do not quench the Spirit. And last week we learned that quench literally means to dampen or even extinguish. Figuratively, it means to hinder or to stifle, suppress, or prevent the Holy Spirit from His exerting His full influence in your life. And while the Holy Spirit is always living and dwelling in you, He will never remove Himself from you, you and I can quench the Spirit from having that full control over our life. And this is what Paul is getting at here in verse 19. He is warning the Thessalonians not to do this, not to quench the Holy Spirit as the Spirit seeks to gift them, as the Spirit seeks to sanctify them. And of course, the same would be true for us. So how do we do this? How is it that we quench or suppress or prevent the Holy Spirit's influence in our lives? And the simplest answer is by not listening to him and putting into practice what he would be telling us. Uh, I'm, I'm not talking about listening to him in the sense of hearing some audible voice, but How the Holy Spirit speaks to you and I through the word of God and into our hearts and into our minds. But. But what about when you have a a feeling? What about when you kind of have a sense that that God is telling you something or or that he's put something on your heart? Truth is, he may have. Or maybe he hasn't. But how can you know? How can you know if that that feeling or that sense is of the Holy Spirit or not? Now, we'll get we'll get even more into this in our next two points. But simply said, you check that feeling against the word of God. You check that sense against scripture. And if it falls outside the bounds of scripture, then you must abandon or not abandon, excuse me, you must understand that it's not of the Holy Spirit and then you abandon it. Here, here's an example. Uh, it's tax time. Tax time, right? Maybe things have been tight. Maybe things have been tight for you or your family. And, uh, you know, you just kind of have that sense that I could easily fudge, just change a few numbers on my tax return and I would be in better shape. And you reason to yourself that the government takes too much anyway. And they are certainly not going to miss a few of your dollars, right? And you think to yourself, okay, well, maybe, maybe, maybe this is, you know, God's way of, of kind of helping me out here. Maybe this is the Holy Spirit leading me, giving me this idea, putting it on my heart. And if the Spirit's the one behind this, then certainly it's okay to do. 
So at this point, what do we do? We take those thoughts, we take those feelings, and we run that through the grid of Scripture against the Word of God. And if we did, what would we find out? Uh Uh-oh, God says so plainly, do not lie. (laughs) Right? It's a sin, sin to lie. Who knows, there may be other sins, you know, going on in that mind of yours uh, that the Word of God might also make you aware of, but let's just say that that would be the biggie. Therefore, you would ascertain that you were, or that feeling that you had, that sense was not put there by the Holy Spirit, but maybe it was put there because you had some bad dinner the night before and got a little touch of food poisoning. I don't know. When challenged about doubting his senses, Scrooge said to the ghost of Jacob Marley in a Christmas carol, you may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard. A crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. There's more gravy than grave about you, whatever you are. And yes, we need to be able to recognize when something is indeed a prompting of the Holy Spirit and when it's just indigestion, right? Because the truth is, if what you were sensing turns out to be sinful, then It was not put there by the Holy Spirit, but was likely put there by either one of Satan's demons, Satan himself, or just your own wicked heart. So again, we quench the Spirit of God when we choose not to listen to Him. You ever notice how kids sometimes have, you know, selective hearing? Yeah, and some of us adults have selective hearing too, don't we? They just kind of seem to hear what they want to hear. For instance, we could be back at our house at at Shea Underwood and, you know, Julie and I can holler out from, uh, you know, uh, one room and they're, you know, at the opposite end of the, the, or or just holler out to anyone, hey, you know, can somebody empty the dishwasher? They could be in the room next to us and uh, can somebody, you know, feed the dog? Can somebody please take the trash out? Silence crickets chirp 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 but they can be at the total opposite end of the house right and i could stand there and say in a totally normal voice anyone want to go to disneyland yeah yeah let's go where are we going we're going now we're going now you know they come out of the woodwork because they have that selective hearing they didn't have a problem really hearing it's just what they chose to hear and we can do this with the holy spirit friends We can just kind of hear what we want to hear or because we don't have some audible voice to contend with, we just kind of ignore his prompting when we sense him leading us to do something we either don't want to do or to not do something that we know we really should do. Another, for instance, Wednesday night rolls around. You have absolutely no plans that evening except to plop yourself down in front of the TV and just veg out on some mindless show when a little reminder goes off in your head. Oh, hey, it's Wednesday. Prayer meeting, 7 o'clock. Yeah, I've been meaning to get to that. Oh, and then the battle begins in your heart and mind, right? And you start to spend the next five minutes reasoning and justifying to yourself why it's okay to blow off prayer meeting that night. Because, man, I I just really wanted to watch my show. And it's been a long day. And I'm tired. And, you know, work was tough. It's dark out. You're already in your jammies. Cat's on your lap. That'd be be a shame to get up and move the cat. Come on, you know. And maybe... 
I'm not saying necessarily so, but maybe you're quenching the Holy Spirit. Or you find yourself in conflict with your spouse. But you've been working on a plan to do good and not evil to them in the midst of conflict. And you even, you even in the midst of the conflict, you remember your plan. And you, you have some Bible verses at the ready to go with that plan. You know what the Word of God says. You, you know what the Holy Spirit wants you to do. And as the, the battle there rages on in your heart and mind, you start to give in to your anger. And the anger gets the best of you. And instead of doing good to your spouse and pulling out a kind word or a loving embrace, you reach back into that quiver of arrows and you pull it out. You load it up in the bow. You even light the thing on fire. Draw back and thunk. And it hits its target. And it erupts into flames. In this case, not only did you quench the spirit but because of your sin Ephesians 4 and verse 30 tells us now you've grieved the Holy Spirit of God all of this to again say we can quench the Holy Spirit when we do not listen to him and when we allow temptation towards sin to overtake us thankfully there's an anecdote There's an anecdote. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Let's back up a couple of books there. Ephesians 5. It's a great chapter on being imitators of God. 5.18. It's the Apostle Paul again. And he says to the church at Ephesus, chapter 5, verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Dissipation just means to pursue one's own lusts. That is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Capital S, right? So what's that mean? What's that mean to be filled with? By the Spirit. Let's, let's first say what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Paul's also not talking about receiving the Holy Spirit here in this text or being indwelt by the Spirit as he's talking about a believer who already has the Holy Spirit living inside of them. And thirdly, Paul is not referring to the Holy Spirit sealing someone's salvation or securing their salvation. What he is talking about here is letting the Holy Spirit control you, lead you, guide you, direct you, which is then expressed in the verses right after verse 18. So in other words, he says, be filled with the Spirit. And then verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So that's Paul's example in this text of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Go ahead and turn to Galatians 5. So just uh, back up one more book. Galatians 5. Beginning in verse 16. 
This whole section is uh, uh, about our, our Christian walks, how we should walk. And in Galatians five sixteen, Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit. So we've been told to be filled with the Spirit, and now walk by the Spirit. And it's to another way of Paul just saying, let the Holy Spirit control you. And if you do this, not only will you then be doing the right things, like we saw in those verses in Ephesians 5, 19 and following, but you will also be abandoning the wrong things, which he then tells us in verse 16. And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets itself sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. There's those things that you, you know you should be doing that you want to be doing. But man, the flesh and the spirit are going at each other. There's no better example of this than Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8. There you go. Here's your homework assignment. Should you choose to accept it? Read this week Romans 7 and Romans 8. But in case, uh, in case you don't, you didn't get to it, I'll just give you two key summary verses for those chapters. In Romans 7, it, it's all about, again, these two, these two natures going, going and doing battle, the, 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 the spirit that's in us and, and our sin-cursed flesh. And Paul says in Romans 7, 15, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Sound like anyone we know? Or is that just those people back east that need to listen to that, right? And and then in chapter 8, verse 5, a good summary might be when Paul says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, right? So now that we are a believer, a Christian, we have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in us, then yes, we want to set our minds on the things of the of the spirit but of course we still have the sin cursed flesh that we have to contend with that we have to deal with now one last thing what if you are quenching or grieving the spirit what do you do then how do you kind of you know reverse course and 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 start walking in and being filled with the spirit that's actually an easy one you can write this down first john 1 9 first john 1 9 Which says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? It's as simple as that, friends. So, we have this command from Paul. Don't quench, we could say, or grieve the Holy Spirit. But when you do... Confess and repent of your sin so that you can again be filled with the Spirit, so that you can again walk by the Spirit. In other words, that you would be controlled by the Spirit so that you do the things you really want to do, thereby being a useful vessel for God and His glory versus doing the things that you know we really don't want to do, which are only going to bring shame and reproach upon Christ and, and the possibility of discipline for ourselves number five number five don't hold the word in contempt 
don't hold the word, meaning the word of God, in contempt. Back in verse 20, so we get back to our Thessalonian passage, 5 verse 20. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Simply prophetic utterances just means prophecy. I also mentioned last week that back in New Testament times, the speaking of prophecy was a gift of the Holy Spirit back then. Uh, Remember that back then people did not have the completed canon of Scripture the way that we do. And so at times God would give this gift of prophecy. That is the ability to speak his words, to give his revelation through a person to the church, to other believers. In 2 Peter Chapter 1 in verses 20 and 21, Peter says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So yes, it's the men doing the speaking, but they're ones who have been moved by the Holy Spirit to speak God's words. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 7, Paul tells us, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then in verse 10, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Tongues being the ability to speak in a language that the speaker had not previously learned. Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, right there beginning in chapter 1. Paul's doing much here to talk about spiritual gifts and specifically prophecy as well as tongues. But in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, he writes this, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now skip down to verse 3. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. So we see part of the purpose of prophecy, that the church should be edified, exhorted, and consoled. We skip down then to verse 18, verse 18 of chapter 14, where Paul says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church... I desire to speak five words with my mind, just referring to prophecy there, so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. So the instruction of God's word to the church was of paramount importance, even more so than speaking in tongues. Paul explains this down in verse 22 when he says, So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers but prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers but to those who believe meaning the church so speaking in tongues was primarily an evangelistic gift while prophecy was there to again edify exhort and console the church meaning believers however verses 24 and 25 just so we you know, take this into account, do mention an unbeliever hearing prophecy and how that can also have a saving effect. Because, of course, they would be hearing what? The gospel. All right? Continue on down to verse 29 of chapter 14. Verse 29, 
where Paul gives some further instructions for those prophesying. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment, meaning the other prophets will, will be the judge as to if the one is, what the one is saying is, is good and right and true. Verse 30, but if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silence. He's just saying there that deference should be given to somebody giving active revelation versus somebody who's, who's, who's uh, talking about something that happened previously. Verse 31, For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, we might ask this question. So what, you know, back then, what what kind of revelation would we imagine came out of these folks who had been given this gift of prophecy? I would imagine exactly what we have in our bibles friends in other words remember paul would show up at a city he'd establish a church he taught what he was able to teach until he would have to leave that church for any number of reasons and then after he had left some members in the church were given that specific gift of prophecy to continue teaching the things that god wanted them to know what would he have wanted them to know the same things that he wants us to know right here right here i think the question is is why would paul feel the need to tell the Thessalonian church not to despise the words of the prophecy that were being spoken. Because obviously there was a problem. There was a problem with despising these things. And I would imagine that it was primarily a problem with the church leadership. Again, you have to remember this isn't a church that's been around for you know 50 years, 25 years, even 5 years It's a a brand new fledgling church in its first year or so of ministry. And you can imagine how how the leaders may have wanted to control even some of the spiritual gifts like prophesying and speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues. Here's why. As one author writes, quote, Because it is difficult to challenge what is uttered or done in the name of the Spirit, So-called spiritual gifts are open to abuse by those who wish to manipulate others. Spiritual gifts also give authority and status to those outside the ranks of traditional leadership. Thus, in order to prevent competitors, the patrons and leaders sought to suppress spiritual gifts. Right? They they sought to, to suppress them. This would not only include despising prophetic utterances... But as another example then of even quenching the Holy Spirit. Now for us today, for us today with the cessation of the sign gifts, prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues, we still have to be careful that we the church, we as individuals don't despise or hold in contempt any part of the word of God. Now I mentioned this last week that Where we see this most in the evangelical church is when people start to pick and choose what they want to believe about Scripture. And I also mentioned that this will often start where? Right back there at the beginning. Right at Genesis 1. That people would despise Genesis 1. That they they wouldn't 
want to necessarily believe in, in, in God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it out of nothing, ex nihilio, in, in a literal six-day period, 24-hour days, because they think in their minds that science doesn't support that. That science instead supports, supports uh, you know, uh, things like evolution and uh, Big Bang Theory and millions of years. And so they just kind of take that and they just kind of toss it out. And what happens next is if they can then disprove Genesis 1 right at the very beginning, well, guess what? They can disprove anything they want. They can go to any other place in Scripture and come up with some some reason why they would say that, well, we don't have to pay attention to that. That's not right or that's not true or the, no, the, there's a different context there and it's blah, 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 and on it goes. It includes things like uh, men's and women's roles, human sexuality, whether or not women can have breakfast burritos at their gatherings. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry. That, that's not in there. That's uh, gender even... Even the words of Jesus. So we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we do not despise prophetic utterances. This leads into our next one real nicely. Carefully examine everything. That's number six. We need to carefully examine everything. Verse 21 goes right along with despising prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully. In other words, test it. Look for authenticity. Prove it. Decide whether it's worthy or not, whether it's true or false or not, whether it's right or wrong or not, whether it's good or bad. And last week we considered the Bereans from Acts 17 and verse 10 and how they examined the Old Testament scriptures daily to see if what Paul and Silas were were teaching them was true. I also then shared with you just the commitment of the elders, the leadership here at Calvary Bible Church, that we would hold fast the word of God and how if you would hear anything coming out of any of our mouths or, for that matter, any other teacher here at Calvary Bible Church, male or female, that didn't sound right or that something that seemed to be contradictory to the word of God, please, you need to say something to us. You need to come to us and, and tell us and point it out to us and show us in Scripture. And our, our commitment to you then will be to be humble, to have humble hearts as we consider your questions, as we consider your concerns. And believe me, if it turns out that, that we or any teacher here have, have erred in any way, shape, or form, we will thank you for your due diligence, certainly apologize, and correct ourselves publicly if need be. Now, how else can you examine everything carefully? How about examining first yourself and then each other in the context of just the word of God and how you use the word of God with one another? In other words, the things that you might be talking about or sharing with one another, something that would be about Scripture, but, but outside of the, our normal kind of CBC sanctioned you know, teaching times. Like now or in our fellowship groups or in men's and women's Bible studies. But, you know, let's just say you're hanging out with your pal at Starbucks. Or you're over at somebody's house and you're, you're talking about Scripture, the Bible, God, His Word, Christ. What do, you, what, do you, what do you do there if something is said that kind of rings as being 
off, strange, maybe even incorrect. Uh, Easy examples concern verses taken out of context. When people do that, we call this proof texting. A A classic, Matthew 18 and verse 20 says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am, uh, I am there in their midst. And I can't tell you how many times that I've heard that, that scripture quoted. Maybe it's quoted at a prayer meeting, or maybe it's quoted at a, at a Christian concert, right? So wait a minute, are you saying that if the only one person was here, the Holy Spirit's not there? Because doesn't the Holy Spirit live inside each one of us? So it really takes a gathering of two, three, or more to actually have the presence of the Holy Spirit? No, absolutely not. That's absolutely incorrect. And what happens is they take this verse out of context because the context of this verse tells us it's in reference to church discipline. That when undergoing church discipline, which can be a very weighty, serious, intense matter, Jesus wants the church to know That when this goes on, that he is there present in his spirit, affirming the difficult matter that the church is dealing with. Another is Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. You know this one. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. We love that text, don't we? We love to just kind of apply that text to ourselves or or we want to encourage a brother or sister that's going through a difficult time with that text. The problem is, is that text is very specific for a certain group of people at a certain time period. It was specifically for Israel talking about what would happen to them after their 70 years of being exiled into Babylon and Babylonian captivity. Now we say, well... But gosh, aren't there other places that teach us those truths? Yes. And guess what? You're going to need to go to some of those other places to explain that. But you can't just take that text and just lay that out and say, well, that's for you. Because it wasn't. It was for Israel. So we have to be careful with some of these things, right? Other examples could be even worse than taking something out of context, such as, you know, speaking about doctrine just flat out incorrectly, um, taking truth and error and kind of mixing them together, or things that are not in Scripture at all, or, or speaking things that are just even flat out heretical. Now, so let's, let's say then that you're with somebody who's doing this. This is happening. What do you do? What do you do? I mean, do you just kind of, you know... I don't want to make waves. I'm just going to kind of let it go. You know, I'm sure they'll forget. Or it's, oh, it's maybe not a really big deal. Here's the thing. I think scripture is clear that it, it shows us we always have an obligation to the truth. Right? We always have an obligation to the truth. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 has Paul in the context of the church exhorting Timothy that he needs to be accurately handling the word of truth. Do we think that doesn't apply to us too? It absolutely applies to us too. We all need to be accurately handling the word of truth. In Philippians 4 and verse 8, we are told that whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. We need to dwell on truth. Now, gang, here's the thing. You're in the midst of this conversation with somebody and these things kind of come up. Sometimes 
here's, here's the kind of the, the best way to think about this. Sometimes it's not what you say. What? It's how you say it, right? It's how you say it. You go, whoa, whoa, you're, you're, you're talking heresy. Heresy. You're at Starbucks. Heretic, right here, heretic. You know, that's probably not going to go over so well. And friendship's probably done, you know, just to be honest. But, but if you just are kind and gracious and you say, hey, can I just, can I ask you something about something you just said? Maybe just give you a challenge. Well, first, where, I'm curious where you see that in the Bible. You challenge them to show you in the word, right? Well, maybe you might consider this and you show them, the right? So again, again, I think you get what I'm saying. Sometimes it's not what you say, but again, it's how you say it. Can you say it in a kind and loving and gracious way? Here's some other examples of just the need to carefully examine everything in the world today. How about different denominations? Beliefs of churches that claim to be even evangelical. The charismatic church, especially the charismatic church that's on kind of the far, far end of the spectrum can be a big concern because, yeah, there's some wacky things going on. You know, we came from up north where uh, Bethel Church in Reading was a uh, big deal, Bill Johnson and all that. And um, he actually founded a church that was in Weaverville, is still in Weaverville. And they actually do believe that things like angel feathers fall from the ceiling. Gold dust appears on the seats. Diamonds will show up in the pews in the in the seating area. They have something you can even, you can go on YouTube. No kidding, you can go on YouTube and see some of this stuff. Apparently, God's Shekinah glory resides in a corner of their uh, of their uh, room. Sometimes um, they uh, do something called fire tunnels, or they all gather and and kind of people run through and they hold their hands up and they touch them as they go by, and then they come out and they're shaking and flopping and doing some, some crazy stuff. Uh, they do something called grave sucking, where they literally go and will lay on graves of departed, like, charismatic leaders, thinking they are getting some of their spirit uh, into them, and even resurrection teams. And I could tell you more stories about that another time. So, yes, there is a need to examine things carefully. And in some of these cases... As is the case, I believe, with Bethel, we're not talking about just, you know, kind of missing the boat on something. We're talking doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons. Now, I know people in the past, too, have asked me about other churches, places like Hillsong, Mosaic, even in Hollywood. People have asked about popular preachers and teachers, you know, the TV people, Joyce Myers and Joel Osteen, and you got Beth Moore and you got Andy Stanley. And 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 what about what about those theologians or, or pastors that we've appreciated, that we've learned much from, and then they've had some kind of moral failure, or they've had some kind of shift in their theology, and next thing you know, it seems they've gone woke, woke, or they seem to be taking some kind of just bizarre stances on societal or political issues. And, and just by the way, because I know not everybody necessarily understands this, definition for woke, if you just put it in your phone, you Google it kind of thing, being alert to injustice in society, especially racism. Okay, there you go. And just one last thing I'd like you to consider uh, in examining everything carefully is then out there in the world, right? Beyond just, you know, the church or issues of the church, how do we examine things carefully out there in the world? Things that happen in our communities and in our cities and in our states and in our country and in our world, whether it be social constructs or or 
government and politics or sports, even arts and entertainment. And here's the deal, friends. You need to develop a biblical worldview so that you can examine everything carefully, thoroughly, through the lens of Scripture. With, yes, the Holy Spirit uh, residing in you with the Holy Spirit's help. And i just like to offer you one of my personal favorites in this is uh, something called uh, The Briefing. It's a podcast by just a tremendous fellow named Albert Moeller. How many of you know of the podcast, The Briefing? There's a number of hands. We had the blessing. He was just in town recently, and Julie and I went up to... Uh, to a crossroads church and he was there and uh, did a, he preached and then they actually recorded an episode of the briefing and you got to sit there in the audience and, but that's what he does. He helps you to kind of sift world events through a, uh, the grid of scripture, his, his tagline, even being a daily analysis of news and events from a Christian world view so that we can examine everything carefully. Now, moving on. I'm going to do what we did last week, which is I'm going to combine our last two points. So, because they just, they just go together. And number seven is this, hold fast to that which is good, verse 21. And then from verse 22, abstain from every form or appearance of evil. Hold fast to possess, retain, keep. I like what the... Um, Complete Word Study Dictionary of the New Testament is kind of one of my go-to resources um, for this. It talks about the word good, and it says this word, quote, expresses beauty as a harmonious completeness, balance, proportion, end quote. In Romans 12 and verse 9, Paul says to cling to what is good, cling to what is good. I couldn't help but think of the, the movie Twister, you know, and, and the, the kind of climactic moment and Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton are running from the barn. They're trying to get away from the Twister and it's coming after him. They go in this little shed and he realizes there are these pipes, right, that go down 30 feet into the ground. So he gets some straps and belts and they belt themselves to the pipes and then literally the Twister goes over and their feet are up in the air and they're flying, you know, but the belts, they're clinging to these pipes while the Twister's going around them. We need to cling, hold fast to what is good. Then abstain. Abstain from every form of evil means to hold off. Hold back from, right? Just the opposite. Avert, go the other direction. And we saw this back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, when Paul tells, tells us to abstain from sexual immorality. Then that word evil is also Wicked, malicious, mischievous. Romans 12, 9 also tells us to abhor what is evil. Hate what is evil. Detest it with horror. And Paul says some similar things in other places. In 1 Corinthians six eighteen, we are told to flee immorality. In ten fourteen, to flee from idolatry. In 1 Timothy six eleven, to flee from a whole list of sins, but especially the love of money. In 2 Timothy 2.22, we're to flee from youthful lusts. Now, one of the things that we didn't have too much of when we were up north was uh, car chases. Not a lot of car chases with helicopters anyway, ones that you can watch on TV. You know, and you see that down here, right? And, the, you know, the criminal's trying to get away. And, of course, you know, they've got helicopters and they've got cars and they've got, you know, everything, right? But they are trying to flee, trying to flee at all costs, get away from Oh, this is what we need to do. We need to do this, but in regard to evil, flee, get away from it, abhor it, abstain from it. 
And last week we had an anecdote to doing evil, which came from 1 Thessalonians 5, 15 that we had a couple of weeks ago. And that was instead of repaying evil with evil, actually to do good to somebody instead. Somebody's done some evil against you and you want to do that thing or you pull out the arrow and thunk them and, and you go, no, no, actually I'm going to do good. I'm going to do good to them. No, they don't deserve it, but I'm going to do good, right? And, and uh, they perpetuated evil again, but I'm going to do good. And of course, the Apostle Paul often tells us what is good or what we need to pursue in our fleeing from evil, such as, quote, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness from 1 Timothy 6.11. And then in 2 Timothy 2.22, that we should pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And last week, we also talked about then understanding what is good and what is evil according to, again, Scripture, God's Word. Here we find those things that God explicitly tells us are good, and we find the things that God explicitly tells us are evil. Those are the obvious things. Then it comes down to obedience, right? You do this because it's good. Don't do that because it's evil. But, but then we ventured into kind of the less obvious good versus evil kind of stuff. For instance, we talked about how, to, how we love to justify things that may not be good for us by simply saying, well, they're not exactly evil, you know. I mean, the sun is good for us. I love the sun. I, this cold weather is like, ah, bring on the sun, right? And, and, and the, the sun is good. The sun is good, except until I got skin cancer a couple years ago on my head. And you go, okay, wait a minute, that good thing is not so good for me anymore. It's actually kind of evil, you know, right? Speaking of moderation, we also talked about the fact that even something good can still control you and become evil. As 1 Corinthians 6, 12 tells us, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And of course, some of the, the kind of common and, and lawful things that people can become mastered from, you know, things like food, coffee, ooh, that hurts, cigarettes, vaping, entertainment, sports, clothing, work, computers, cell phones. <laughs> Who watched a 60 Minutes episode one time about kids addicted to cell phones and what they have to, you know, do and they send them to these camps, you know, the kid's like, ah! You know, that kind of thing is they don't have their cell phone. Oh, man. The list goes on. This then led into considering what is good versus evil in regard to your Christian liberties. Your Christian liberties. And I was going to read it. Well, I'll hold off on reading. But if you, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 talks about our Christian liberties, right? And the, and the fact that, that we have to be careful because there might be this brother that, you know, has come out of this pagan practice of idolatry where where they'd make these sacrifices and animal sacrifices and then and then afterwards they wouldn't waste it but they'd eat it you know they'd eat the sacrifice and well you can go and sit down and 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 paul says yeah you the christian you know that's solid in your faith you don't have a problem with that it's just meat it's just barbecue right and uh but you know this brother that came out of that practice he sees you eating and then you know what are you gonna do you're gonna hey come on no it's okay to eat and they're like "Ah, i just don't feel right about it you know because that's that was kind of had to do with idols and the stuff that I came out of. And, and it would be wrong for you to go, no, come on, come on. It's just pulled pork or whatever, you know, just, just eat. And now we got to be careful of those things too and watching out 
for our liberties and not causing another brother to stumble and recognizing then when something that seemingly could be good can also turn evil. In other words, what may be good for you is not necessarily going to be good for that other brother or sister. And so you don't want to cause them to stumble, so then you refrain from partaking in that Christian liberty. Now, we learned last week that what this all adds up to is really what we would call spiritual discernment. We need to be able to spiritually discern between good and evil. We need to be able to rightly understand if something is good and should be held fast to or even clung to or if something is evil and should be abstained from, even abhorred, that we should flee from it. And I read to you Hebrews 5.14, which tells us that we need to have our senses trained to discern good and evil, right from wrong. There was once a father, and he was vacationing with his family, and they're on a road trip. When he comes across a large sign, because they're kind of on some back roads, you know, taken in the scenery, and it says, road closed, do not enter. What do you think the father did? He's got to enter it, right? Oh, no, that's got to, that's for somebody else. Or, you know, now this is, this is a shortcut. Or we're going to see better scenery if we go this way. And, of course, his wife is, is resistant to the adventure. But at this point, there is no turning back for this persistent road warrior dad. And after a few miles of successful navigation, he begins to boast about his gift of discernment. When his proud smile is quickly replaced with humble sweat when the road leads to a washed out bridge. Turns the car around and retraced his tracks back to the main road. Of course, that would show a lack of discernment. Friends, we need to exercise, we must exercise good spiritual discernment in order to hold on to what is good, hold fast to what is good, and again, run away from all that is evil. Now, these, these, these sanctifiers that we looked at last week and today, of course, they're, they're only as good as somebody knows the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's the only way that you can be sanctified is if you first know Christ and then the Holy Spirit comes to live and dwell in you. And that just simply means that, that friends, we, we have to recognize that we are sinners through and through and our sin has consequences. And the consequences are death. Not just physical death, but punishment, hell, the lake of fire even, for for our sins against a holy, perfect, and righteous God. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so, friends, I call you this morning, if you need to believe on the Lord Jesus, you need to put your trust in him. You need to believe that he went to the cross in your place, that that he took he took your sin upon himself. He became sin for you and died the death that you or I should have died. But he did so on our behalf, on your behalf, so that you could then actually be given the righteousness of Jesus. You you could be given his righteousness before God. That then we would not have to suffer the consequences of our sins, but rather we will be blessed with eternal life like Jesus, having gone into the grave, but then three days later resurrecting, conquering death. 
that we would be able to live for all eternity with him. And so as we go to prayer here, I just pray that you would, you would uh, maybe have that desire to put your faith, your hope, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning, what you have shown us from your word. And Lord, we, we pray that we would just be actively wanting to pursue these, these sanctifiers that, that uh, we have come to understand from your word, put them into practice, Lord. And for any here that need to know Christ, that they would trust him as their savior, even, even right now while we are praying, that they would also pray just uh, seeking your forgiveness and putting their trust in Jesus. We pray this all in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.